So I'm going to take a break from the normal storytelling at the top of this podcast and tell you something. Actually, I'm going to ask for something. In one month, I have a book coming out. It's my ninth release, and it's titled Three Ring Circus, Kobe, Shaq, Phil, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty. And I'm not asking you to buy the book. I'm not discouraging you from buying the book, but I'm definitely not asking you. Nope. I'm just asking your help pimping it. If you have a podcast, I'll appear. A blog, I'll talk. If you have a friend of a friend of a friend of a cousin of an uncle of a friend who hosts a radio show in Kalamazoo, I'll go on. And yeah, maybe this sounds pathetic, but we're living in a pandemic during a ludicrous time in history. Any assistance counts. I'm at angold22 at gmail.com, and I would love the help. Thank you. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. Today's episode features Dave Scheinan, the outstanding Washington Post baseball writer and a man who once spent a year writing about Robert Griffin III and who also once received a $50 tip at the piano from a very sad Dusty Baker. This is episode number 169. Let's sing some yay. Dad, being quarantined sucks. And so does your podcast. Oh, Dave, first of all, it's interesting looking at you because I, I, I don't think we've seen each other. I have this vague memory of you singing at a bar during the 2002 World Series and Dusty Baker was there. Does, this, oh, does yes. that ring a bell? Did that yes, happen? that did happen. Um, it was, in fact, it was the night of game six, which is the one, you know, the, the ill-fated one where he went out to pull Russ Ortiz from the game with the Giants about to clinch the World Series, I don't know, seventh, eighth inning or something. Gave Russ Ortiz the game ball uh, as like a memento, and then the Angels came back on them, won the game, forced the game seven, and, and the Giants lost. And that night, game six, was when I was playing piano at the bar of the Hilton in Anaheim, and Dusty was there. And Dusty was, was like – at first he was like just – almost sobbing into his drink. But by the end, he was like, had this huge smile on his face. And I took some personal credit for that. And at the end of the night, he got up to leave and came over and someone had set up a whiskey glass on the piano as like a fake tip jar just for laughs. Dusty puts a 50 in the tip jar and walks away. I remember that. Yeah. You remember the 50? Yeah. I do. And, um, you know, of course, I, I didn't take it. We gave it to the uh, to the bartender or the, uh, the the waitress who was coming around and helping us, and she was great, and so we just gave it to her. But what a night. So the funny thing is, I always figured, well, that's your – I mean, I know, obviously, you, uh, you studied voice and opera at Vanderbilt, and you have a, a long musical career as sort of a, a side career to, to your writing. And I always thought, well, oh, that must have been his big sports musical moment. But then I was doing a little research – Correct me if I'm wrong, 1996, uh, you sang to Danny Werfel after he won the Heisman oh, Trophy. I did. I did. Again, you know, that's when – that was at a time in my life when I was still actively singing opera. I was, I was working for the Miami Herald and singing in the Miami Opera Chorus in sort of my spare time. And it, it was a weird arrangement, and, and both sides had to sort of allow that to work with some – you know, had to be lenient with me. But yeah, at the end of that season, we're in New York at the Downtown Athletic Club, all the Gator writers and me. 
And, um, you know, they knew about my singing, of course, at that point. And at the end of the night, you know, the ceremony's over. Danny Werfel wins the Heisman. We've all written our game stories. We're drinking in the, uh, in the bar there, all the writers. And someone says, hey, Danny and his family's in, the, in this little closed-off room next door. And um, they're like, oh, you got to go sing. You got to go sing Danny Boy to him. And I'm like, well, maybe one more drink, you know. And uh, so one more drink. We go, we kind of like go in there and, and there's Danny, there's his family and sitting on the table is the Heisman trophy. And, um, yeah, the, the, someone says, Hey, Danny, uh, Dave here from the Miami Herald, you might not know this. He's a singer. He wants to sing something for you. So I stand there in the middle of this room, acapella and sing Danny boy. <laughs> yeah. He, he says something like, you know, after five years at this place is the first time I've ever seen any, any of you with any talent. That's awesome. So, yeah, yeah. I think of you obviously as a, as a baseball guy and a baseball writer. And I used to see you at a lot of games back in the, you know, late nineties, early two thousands, but I'm fascinated by something. These kind of things that spark my head. Um, I saw some of your, your clips from writing about Danny Werfel's Heisman trophy season. Mm. I, recently, I recently watched the movie. Um, Everybody's all American. <sighs> and it's about this sort of, for people who haven't seen it, it's kind of about this guy who has this quote unquote Heisman season played by Dennis Quaid, the, the great ghost at LSU and kind of the struggles that followed the moment, the glory of that moment. And then kind of the struggles that, and it, actually it's not a great movie, but it always hits me in so many mm-hmm. ways. And I wonder when you were covering a Heisman trophy season and you were covering someone like Danny Werfel, does it feel Special? Does it feel fleeting? Like at the time, or do you just think this is kind of a fun college football season? Are you aware that there's something interesting and unique about it as it's going on? I think that you, you realize at the time that it's special and that, you know, nothing's guaranteed in the pros. I mean, we've seen so many, especially quarterbacks who win the Heisman and, and then never turn into anything in, in the pros. And, and there's something – I don't know, man. And, and I think it's captured well in Everybody's All-American, but, you know, there's just something romantic, um, sweet about, you know, the, the great college quarterback in his senior year and just just sort of knowing that in, in many ways life is never going to be so good again. You know, um, even, even if you have a great NFL career and – I think we all sort of maybe felt like Borfel wasn't quite built for the NFL game. And so you recognize it in the moment, but I mean, you know, there's a feeling in that moment in time that this, this, this kid's life is never going to be this great again. Yeah. I was like, Danny Werfel has had um, a lot of illnesses and he's 46 years old. And it almost is that movie in a lot of ways. He didn't have a great NFL career. It was kind of fleeting. And there's always something sad to me about it all. Mm -hmm. Bittersweet about it all. It's funny. You were covering college football before the insanity. I mean, there was the insanity, but before the, like um, you go on YouTube now, I just saw this the other day and Clemson will show their new $20 million, blah, blah, blah facility. And, Maybe we can get you a player for five minutes. And was it still a fun sport to cover when you were covering it? Well, it was. I mean, you know, the access wasn't great. It wasn't as if, you know, you were uh, at every practice and and hanging out and, and talking to anybody you wanted to. It was still fairly controlled at that time. But, you know, it did feel a lot more low key, less corporate. Um, and, and, and frankly, man, I mean, SEC football, I went to Vanderbilt. I grew up a Georgia Bulldogs fan, covered the Gators. I mean, to my mind, 
you know, the pageantry and um, uh, atmosphere of SEC football is probably as great as anything I've ever experienced. Wait, does Vanderbilt have a football team? Oh, man. Now, look, man, don't make me sick. Buster Olney and Tyler Kepner and Lee Jenkins and, and Skip Bayless on you, man. Uh, come on. I actually covered my first job. I was at the Tennessean. And, um, oh, that's right. So Mike Oregon was covering Vanderbilt at the time. And it'd be two wins, three wins. They'd lose to Tennessee by 50. There'd be Woody Wiedenhofer <laughs> would be the new coach. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was, there were some dark years. There were yeah. some dark years. Um, <laughs> when I look at your timeline recently – about what you've been writing about. Obviously, you're a baseball writer for the Washington Post. And, I mean, literally the headlines, Cardinals report additional positive tests for coronavirus. After coronavirus shutdown, rebuilt Marlins rise at the top of the NOE standings. Cardinals report no new coronavirus tests. MLB learns to improvise. Is this misery for you, or is it interesting for you? Um, I mean, there's a part of me that, that loves the chase of news, you know. Um, it's sort of a, a, a long-repressed part of me that, you know, I developed early in my career and, and that had been sort of dormant. And so there's a part of me that really digs, you know, the, the, the adrenaline rush of chasing news and um, banging it out really quickly for the website and then deadlines. And, but I mean, in general, it, it is misery because, you know, though I'm a baseball writer, I guess, you know, by, by trade, I mean, I, I love and feel like I, I'm best at sort of longer, thoughtful um, takeouts and, and features and stuff like that. And this has put a big, you know, cramp my style. Um, you know, it, the next person who, who it, it, before, before sports started back up, before baseball started back up, I would get asked um, over and over and over by people, oh my gosh, you must be loving life right now. There's no sports. You must have, you have nothing to do. What do you, I'm, I wanted to slug those people because I had never been busier in my life because, you know, you can just imagine how massive a disruption this was to a, a multi-billion dollar industry. I'd never been busier. And, and that's held true with the season. Um, I've barely written about any baseball. It's just constant COVID news. And that really began back in March when they shut it down. It's just been nonstop ever since. Here we are. It's, we're recording this early on a uh, Wednesday morning. Um, like, how does this go? Like, what will your day be? Well, it just so happens that right now I am working on a, a pretty nice feature that's kind of, I think it'll, it, 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 this will be out before the, or after the story runs, but it's about just the, the eerie sounds of an empty ballpark. Um, but even that's COVID related, right? That's all goes back to the fact that, you know, coronavirus has, has prevented fans from being in stadiums. And, um, but generally, you know, it's, um, you, you know, you're, you're trying to figure out what's coming next, right? I mean, there's, there's the micro picture, which is right now is the Cardinals and getting them uh, back on the field after what's going to end up being two weeks down. Um, and then there's the macro picture of, of where does baseball go? How perilous, how tenuous is the situation? What's October going to look like right now? It, you know, it's starting to look like they're going to try a bubble. So there's all these different permutations going on with with how the, this virus is affecting the game, and and it's just never ending. Wait, so how do you? Um, you said you're working on a piece about sort of the sounds of an empty stadium. How do you go about working on a piece about the sounds of an empty stadium when the stadium is empty? Yeah, it was just you know go to a game and and sort of tune into it for for starters. Um, just walking through the empty 
um, concourses, you know, a half an hour before first pitch and hearing nothing but just the, the low hum of generators and, you know, machinery. And then just, just the, the fake crowd noise. I mean, you hear every hand clap on the field. You hear every expletive. Um, the crack of the bat you know, sounds majestic. Um, and, and then it's just, you know, go, I, I've gone back and listened to a lot of clips. So I've listened to games on radio, TV, just to hear what it sounds like to fans who are watching or listening um, and talking to some people about, about the experience, you know, players and managers and broadcasters and um, yeah, just about what, it, what it's like from their vantage point because it's just so eerie. Wait, how do you, I don't even know these days, like how are you, interviewing players do you request through the nationals or orioles specific mm-hmm. players you want to talk to via zoom and they hook you up yeah zoom? yeah you can do that or or if you know or just via phone for that matter um yeah and then you know the, the teams all have various players available at, at various times um for everybody and you can jump on one of those but you know a lot of i mean some of it was just uh like a, a broadcaster i i i called i, I emailed the uh, the organist from uh, the red sox uh josh Cantor, really cool guy um and just talked to him because he's he's playing you know he he's playing organ all night long for for nobody you know and just what's that like and so yeah it's it's uh, it's just a lot you know I try to cast a wide net again I'm kind of a geek like I feel like a lot of people writing that story wouldn't think to call the organ player. I'm not so sure that is a thought most people would have. I think most people would say, I'm going to try to talk to a few players. Hopefully they'll let me walk a stadium and blah, blah, blah. Like, how do you even think to yourself, you know who I'm going to call? I'm going to call an organ player. That is a good idea. Well, it's, it's just because of um, being in baseball, you know, I mean, organ music in baseball and it's not done at every stadium, just mainly the, the throwback older stadiums, Boston, Chicago, I guess Dodger Stadium has one. I'm sure there are others. But it's so um, ingrained in the culture of it for me um, that that's a sound that I, you know, that's a sound that I tune into, um, especially being a musician and a keyboardist. And that was an early thought of mine, immediately off the bat. I want to talk to the organist from the Red Sox. Smart. If I were the editor of the actually sadly now defunct Best American Sports Writing, there's a piece you recently wrote that would be for me a no-brainer. You wrote, um, it's called Welcome Back Sports. It seems we're really going to do this. And I just want to read the lead real quick. It was so good. You wrote, so we're really going to do this, are we? We're really going to bring back sports in the middle of a global pandemic. We're really going to send our best athletes back onto the fields and courts in empty arenas and stadiums, despite their own trepidation, sometimes spoken, mostly not. We're really going to have the stomach to root again and cheer again from the socially distant comfort of our living rooms for athletes who are risking their health for our entertainment. We're really going to have the heart to boo the Houston Astros over a cheating scandal. We're going to do this all the time when the United States is a trembling, lonely dot at the upper right corner of the global novel coronavirus case chart, soaring into the uncharted stratosphere and signaling to the rest of the world our singular inability to handle a pandemic most other first world countries have successfully beaten back. You wrote this piece. You don't use the words, fuck, shit, go to hell, <laughs> fuck off, motherfucker. And yet, yeah. me reading it, and maybe it's just my vantage point, it's kind of a rage-filled, there's something like an energy of anger that kind of goes through that without saying, I'm really angry. 
but I don't know if that's what you were trying to do or that's just my interpretation. Mm, it wasn't really anger so much as just astonishment, you know, and, and I was trying to convey the astonishment that we all feel as Americans, or at least those of us who, you know, <laughs> who view this as a, a national tragedy uh, and travesty, this, this virus, I mean, and our, 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 our collective uh, response to it, but just to, you know, convey how, how incredible it is that we're going to try to, to play sports uh, through this um, once in a century pandemic. And, and, and I mean, I think that it's the same thing that athletic directors and presidents of the Big Ten and Pac-12 and um, all, all the conferences, I mean, it's the same thing that they're grappling with is like, how, how can we do this? How can we put college kids out on the field in the middle of this? So I don't know. I don't, I didn't feel anger. I just felt, I felt astonishment. And, you know, I also want, I also had to tread a line and not be, I didn't want to be too negative and alarmist. And I mean, because, you know, in some ways, and I wrote this in another story a few days after that for the Nationals opening day, that it's really a miracle it's a miracle that we could pull off professional sports in this atmosphere. And, and so there's something, you know, I, I, I didn't want to be too negative and I didn't want to sound angry. I, <laughs> I hope it didn't come across angry. Oh, I think you, re- you sometimes you see what you, what you feel, you know, yeah. I feel like sometimes yeah. you read something and you feel, I don't know. Now that we've kind of rolled into this, do you feel like this is a good idea or a bad idea? Baseball being played. Um, I, I get why they had to try. I mean, you, you just, you can't, you can't go dark for what would end up being 18 months, I guess. Um, baseball was in a terrible spot because unlike the NBA and NHL, which had completed 80% of their seasons and unlike the NFL, which had time on their side, you know, this was going to wipe out the entire baseball season if they shut down in March and never started back. So that I could understand why they had to try it. I mean, I, I take my cues from science, you know, and I mean, uh, scientists were saying it was it was doomed to fail. It was a bad idea. Um, trying to do it without a bubble. And again, I understand why they did it without a bubble. It's just too unwieldy. It's played every day. You need so many stadiums. So, you know, you're, there's 900 players, half that many staff. It, it couldn't be done. But doing it this way was um, inherently risky, aggressive. And a lot of people were saying it's doomed to fail. Now that we're um, a quarter of the way through the regular season, I mean, I think it's going to work. I think it's going to, I think they're going to pull it off. I mean, the Cardinals are, are still on the shelf, but they're a few days away, uh, no positive tests away from getting back on the field on Friday. And then at that point, you're back to a full slate. So I think they're going to pull it off. Do you think the team that wins the World Series, if there's a World Series, do we talk about them as an asterisk next to it? Or yeah. is it the opposite where it's like, this was the craziest season ever. And here's this team that survived a million different things. And it's even more amazing than blank. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's the latter, to be honest with you. I mean, you know, the closest comparison is 81 when there was a strike shortened season, they, they ended up playing anywhere between 103 and 111 games in the regular season. And there were variances in there that could end up being reflected this year as well. But, you know, the Dodgers won the World Series that year. And I don't think anybody to this day really thinks of them as any less, so, less worthy of a world uh, champion. Um, I, I think that the team that survives this year 
wins the World Series, they may be the most deserving champion ever because, I mean, I've seen up close like how disruptive this is to everyday routines in baseball. And everyday routines in baseball, as you know from being there and covering it, it it's, it's, it's based on everyday routines. It's rooted in everyday routines. And this is throwing those off completely. And the teams that are, are successful right now are the ones that are buttoned down, are, are taking this professionally. Um, they're taking it seriously. And they are winning the battle against the virus at the same time they're winning the battle on the field. And that's incredibly hard to do. Right. We, talk, we mentioned before I, we started, I was like, we were comparing – I was trying to figure out if you were covering the Orioles in 99 when I had a Will Clark. Yeah. And, you were. And, and then I was looking at, I have a story in front of me. You wrote from 2002, disgruntled Scott Rowland said he would agree to play for the Orioles. And I was looking through just years and years and years of baseball writing, right? Years and years of baseball writing and so many yeah. names who have come and gone. And I wonder, how do you not get tired of it? Um, well, I mean, first of all, like, to be honest, like my, in my job, I'm not covering a lot of games anymore as the national baseball writer. I'm not going to games and covering game stories outside of October when, you know, I'm writing game stories in the playoffs all the time. Um, and those are epic games that, you know, you, you don't really get tired of, um, unless, you know, like if there's an 18 inning world series game, which just about broke me. Um, I don't get tired of it because like my, my office lets me cover it the way that I think I want to cover it, which is to, you know, focus on the people and the stories behind the scenes and not necessarily on the nuts and bolts, um, of baseball. You know, there's other people, I think other websites that are going to give you that. I'm going to give you more of a big picture uh, look and, and tell you about the people involved and, and things like that. Um, and I do love a deep dive into baseball, like into the nuts and bolts. I try to do a couple of those every year where you get deep into the way the game is changing on the field. But for the most part, you know, I mean, I, I keep it, I try to keep it fresh and, and interesting on, on different levels. You wrote a piece. It was really, really good. And it went up in the best American sports writing, actually, for the love of Bryce Harper. It ran in, on March 13th, 2011, Washington Post Magazine. Uh, your lead real quick was the first thing you do is you go over and grab one of those iron rods, rebards, call it, from the pile. It may weigh 50 pounds, maybe 80, maybe more. You throw it over your shoulder and hump it over to your crew. If it's 115 degrees in Vegas that day, it's probably 135 in the hole where you're laboring, clad in heavy work clothes, building the foundation of another casino, feeding the great beast of the desert. You lay the rebar down, tie its ends with 16-gauge wire, and now it's ready to be encased in concrete. One more grain of rice down the beast's gullet. They say Las Vegas is a town of phoniness and illusion, fake pyramids, fake Manhattan skylines, fake Eiffel Towers. But Ron Harper, for 27 years a union card-holding and reinforcing iron workers, local 416, a rod buster, as they call themselves, can tell you one thing. For every gaudy, phony facade in this godforsaken town, a couple hundred men, some of them his men, bent their backs to send it up into the sky. Watch him get one of those monthly shots in his neck to ease the pain and then tell him everything in Las Vegas is fake. It's fucking great. Mm. That's great. Oh, thanks, man. So you're basically introducing Washington to Bryce Harper. Like, this is Bryce Harper and here's who he is. And you wrote in 2011. And I wonder, nine years later as we sit here, is it still possible to write those stories about people who are on the cusp of super fame, or are you going to have a million handlers saying, wait, blah, 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 and wait, blah, blah, blah. No, I don't know if we can do that. Or are those still feasible pieces to write? Man, that's such a great question. And I mean, 
I think you know the answer, man. I, I think it's, it gets harder and harder all the time. This gets more and more buttoned down. Um, you know, I was lucky in that case in that I had already been out to Las Vegas one time to write about Bryce. Um, uh, I must have been out, out west for something else and just decided, hey, I'll just pop over to Vegas because this kid was playing high school. Um, he was about to go in the draft to the Nationals. We knew that. So I wrote a smaller, shorter piece about him and, and, and went to one of his college games and met his father there. So when it came time to do the big magazine piece – on Bryce, um, I went straight to the father and bypassed the Nationals and Scott Boris. Um, went straight to Ron Harper and said, hey, I'm looking to come out there, maybe spend a couple days, do it. This is a magazine cover piece. It's going to be, you know, kind of kind of long. And he's like, come on out, you know, we'll, we'll have you over for dinner, blah, blah, blah. And, and, um, and I think that was the best thing I could have done. You know, the Nationals PR department at the time, they, I think they learned of the story when it came out in the magazine and they were shocked, you know, and, and a little bit angry. And I remember having a conversation with one of them, a Nationals PR staffer, um, after the story came out. And he was, they were a little bit, they were just shocked and a little uh, miffed maybe that it, it happened that way. And I was like, you know, if I had gone through you guys and asked for that, what would have happened? And, and he was like, well, we would have turned you down. Right. And I mean, I, I mean, that, that's the whole thing, right? That, that explains why I had to do it that way. And it's just becoming harder and harder to do. Wait, so you have a part here that I love. You wrote, he loves his dog and his mama and says his dad is his best friend. He sleeps with his bats. He's a thing for female soccer players, which is a line I love. I just think it's very funny. <laughs> at home, he's prone to invading the kitchen at 1 a.m. and helping himself to a bowl of fruity pebbles. The empty bowl is frequently found in the bedroom days later. A month before he was to report to his first professional spring training, he attended a high school Sadie Hawkins dance with his girlfriend, a soccer player, of course. That's yeah, wife. that's his wife now. Yeah, she was there. Let's say you were doing this piece and you just found him to be an obnoxious little punk of a kid. Like he's this 18-year-old kid and he's just insufferably annoying. Can you write that story? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think you can, absolutely. I mean, I'm not going to be dishonest about it. I mean, if that's how he is and that's the impression I get, and if he's going to sit down with a Washington Post reporter and be obnoxious and you know, I'm going to write it that way, I mean, I might not use the word obnoxious, you know, but like I'm going to convey that this is how he is and maybe he's going to back it up uh, and maybe, you know, the, the game is going to hand his ass to him. Um, but, yeah, I'm going to be honest about it for sure. Did you find him likable when you're sitting across him? And is it, is it hard to be whatever you were at the time, you know, 40 or whatever, and relate to an 18-year-old kid? Does that get harder as the age gap? Well, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, I guess that's probably why much of the story, including the lead that you just read, is, is more from the perspective of the dad. I couldn't relate to an 18-year-old kid at that point. Um, I wanted to learn about him and try to explain him and get in his head a little bit, and I hope I think I did that. But I walked away, and I didn't go into the story uh, intending to do this, but I walked away uh, from that interview and from those couple of days I spent in Vegas you know, thinking that the most interesting thing and the thing I wanted to build a story around was his relationship with his father. And maybe that's because I, I related more to the father. Maybe that's because at that point in 2011, I was a newish father myself and I was really in tune with fatherhood and parenthood and how raising kids, how, how that molds and shapes who they become. 
Um, so all those things happen and probably inform the way I approach that story. Before we continue with Two Writers Slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who, on behalf of 503 Sports Kings of the Throwback Sports Merchandise, has a public service announcement she's written for the occasion. You ready? I guess so. All right, go ahead. Hi, I'm Casey Perlman, and on behalf of 503 Sports, Kings of the Throwback Sports Merchandise, and on behalf of 503-sports.com, stop being stupid and start wearing a mask. And if you're the one idiot who keeps walking into my local Costco without a mask, thinking you're all Sean Hannity, thinking you're all Mike Gundy, cut the crap. You're a moron. Thank you. Aren't you forgetting something? Oh, yeah. Buy a jersey and the kids will stop laughing at you. So you've written, you've written deeply about, I would say, the two heavily hyped young Washington athletes to come along in sort of yeah. that period, which is, again, Bryce Harper. I guess you could throw Steven Strasburg in there, but also RG3. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. All right, so you, you were actually assigned to cover RG3, correct? Mm-hmm. How yeah. does that happen, and what does that even mean? Well, you, you probably know this, but you know the Washington Post kind of has this long um, legacy of assigning a reporter to a trans, transcendental kind of figure in sports for an entire season and chronicling the season. You know, it started with Michael Jordan when he came to the Wizards, and and we've done that a few times. And um, so basically, you know, I got a call from my sports editor Matt Vita. Um, I was at spring training, I guess it was 2012 in March, and. He said, you know, we want to pull you off of baseball. We want to put you on RG3. He's, that's your assignment for the year. At that point, um, it, it was clear that the draft had not happened yet, um, but Washington was going to draft him for sure with the number two spot. And, and, you know, my assignment was basically go to Texas immediately, get to know him before he gets drafted and, and it becomes harder to get access to him. And that was the best thing that we could have done because all, all, every, all that came true. I mean, as soon as he got drafted, the team put an end to all of his interviews. Everything had to go through them. They said no to everything. And so the time I spent with Griffin and his family in Texas in March before the draft was critical and essential. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I produced something like six or eight long pieces about him during the course of that year, starting in probably April, right around the draft and going all the way through the next January when he, when he had the playoff game where he, he got hurt. It was a, it was a great assignment. It was hard. It was hard, man, because my access was almost nil. I got turned down everywhere. I mean, the Redskins, I I had about five minutes of one-on-one time with him through the Redskins for that entire season, five minutes. I was desperate to get more time with him. The, the agents were turning me down. The team was turning me down. So I went through the sponsors. I started calling up his sponsors. I'm like, hey, you know, could you help me get some time with Griffin? And they're like, uh, you know, but Gatorade said yes. They're like, come out to L.A. Uh, the day after the ESPYs, Griffin is going to be speaking at the Gatorade National Player of the Year dinner. We'll get you a few minutes with him after that. So I go all the way to L.A. I tell my boss, look. I have to go to L.A. to talk to our quarterback in Washington. And the boss was like, if that's what you got to do, you got to do it. So we flew to L.A. I go to this dinner. I get 13 minutes with Griffin afterwards. I, I, I had it on my recorder. I could tell at the end of the interview. And, and at about 13 minutes, the agent comes over and gives the uh, fingers across the neck motion. That's it. He's done. And so I had 13 minutes. And basically, that was all I had one-on-one time with Griffin for the entire season after March when I got him in Texas. And I ended up writing a 100,000 word book 
off of that. And, and not to mention, you know, six or eight long newspaper stories. Wait, I have a lot of questions about this, but I just want to say <laughs> I, have, I have a book coming out in about a month about the Shaq Kobe Lakers. And I was, yeah, I drove up to the Lakers practice facility to talk with Mark Madsen, who was an assistant coach last year with the Lakers. Mark Madsen is, and this is not to be mean to Mark Madsen. He's probably the 25th most significant member of the Lakers from this time period. <laughs> and I'm sitting down with him. And the PR woman, he's an assistant coach. He's so eager and happy to be talking. Like we were having, yeah. oh, every now and then you have those interviews where the person is just genuinely happy to be there and he could talk for an hour and he's great. And I see the PR person go like this. The end yeah, of, um, yeah. I, I just sometimes I feel like, why do you exist? Like, why, why are you doing that to me? Why are you doing that to me? No, they're absolutely the worst. I mean, and like you said, most of the time, the person talking to you is happy to be there and happy to be talking and is, you know, I mean, maybe even enjoying it a little bit. I don't know. Um, Griffin was great. Those 13 minutes I got with him in LA were absolute gold. I mean, he is so great as a quote and, you know, telegenic and everything. Um, it carried me a long way, 13 minutes. You wouldn't imagine, but it, it carried me a long way. Um, but yeah, man, I mean, I, sometimes I can't even b believe that I, I turned that, you know, uh, such little access into a hundred thousand words. You go to Texas before the draft. Do you just show up? Do you just call Baylor? And say, no. Like how'd that work? That was through the agent. That was, um, yeah, that, that was set up. And, and at that point they, they were cool. You know, it wasn't like they, they had multiple media requests every day. There were, there weren't people like trying to get him in Texas. There were a few, I mean, I wasn't alone. There, there would be, I, I, you know, I remember running into a TV cameraman from, I don't know if it was ESPN or what, but, um, yeah, yeah. That was, um, that was set up through the agent. You know, everything just, everything is low key in March with the NFL, you know, it's once they get drafted, and they become sort of team property, everything gets shut down and the madness begins. You're writing for the Washington Post. You're writing for one of the biggest newspapers in the country. You're writing about a team in the city. So it's the biggest paper in the big city. They have a big time star. You want to write about them. You have a reputation as a very strong mm -hmm. journalist and a good writer. Why are they denying you access? You know, I can't answer that other than to say they don't need us. You know, even the Washington Post, they don't need us, you know. They need TV. TV is where their bread is buttered. Um, I mean, that year, I mean, I can tell you this. When Aaron Andrews came through or John Gruden came through, they got to sit down with Griffin, you know, without fail. And I get it. Those are rights holders. Um, but, you know, that that's who they need. Uh, they need to take care of those people. They don't need to take care of the Washington Post. Not to mention the fact that, you know, the Washington Post has a bad relationship with that franchise going back years and years and years and, and continues to this day. It's just antagonistic. They're not going to go out of their way to help the Washington Post. So when like when an Aaron Andrews or John Gruden comes through and they get 25 minutes with Robert, yeah. are you just yanking your hair, hair out? Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, it's painful because, you know, you take pride in, in what you're producing and, and, you know, you're, you're exhausting yourself writing around the lack of access and going to, you know, finding everybody, high school friend and college teammate and everybody you can to, to make up for it. But man, I mean, what, <laughs> yeah, it, it tore me up. And, 
I mean, it's just the way it had to be. And, and I, I mean, I eventually accepted it. I did the best I could, um, you know, and I could, I suppose, quote from those interviews, which I probably did at times. I don't, I don't really remember specifically doing that, but I, I, I was professionally jealous for sure. What are the keys to writing around when your subject, the guy you are writing about, isn't actually talking to you? Well, I mean, let, let's put it this way. I mean, the 13 minutes I got in LA carried maybe two or three stories because he was so good. Like I said, there was a great quote or two that I spread out over a couple of stories. So it didn't, I don't think I ever had to write an entire story without his voice in it. And, and, and again, going back to the March interviews, uh, where I got some good access to him and his family. Th- those carried me the same way. I-, I rationed that stuff out over several pieces. But it was just really casting a wide net. I mean, it was talking to as many college teammates, high school friends, family members. Um, I took a trip to New Orleans ahead of their opener that year at New Orleans at the Saints um, because that's his sort of ancestral home. That's where his family was from. Um, New Orleans. So he had uncles and people there. And I I spent a full day in New Orleans with one of his uncles about, you know, a summer when, when Griffin, Robert, little Robert came to stay with them in New Orleans. And I just cast a wide net. I I, I traveled luckily. I mean, this is where, you know, you're, you're lucky to be at the Washington Post. I mean, they spared no expense. I mean, like I said, they flew me to LA for 13 minutes with Griffin. They, they let me go to New Orleans to talk to his family members there you know, it's, it's good to be at the Washington Post sometimes. I mean, pretty much all the time. And, and that's one great example. Is there a way to work around the, the inevitable question? So is RG3 cool with you doing this? Or is RG3 working on this with you? Or blah, blah, blah. Is there, is there a yeah. workaround on that one? Because I always struggle with that. Yeah, um, he was cool working with the Washington Post. Uh, once it, it came out that I was doing a book, um, I, he was fine at first. And then um, something changed, which, uh, you know, I heard through back channels was the agent um, sort of turning him against the book because, you know, they had no control, no, you know, financial stake in it. Um, And eventually that dried up some of the back channels that I had, which was his immediate family, his parents. Um, You know, eventually everybody clammed up on me from his camp. Then it became even more difficult. But by then, you know, the book didn't sell until I didn't sell that book till September, October. I had so much stuff by then um, that I could I could easily work around that. You went up to RG3 now. Yeah. You're like, what that what was that? Yeah, yeah. Do you think he'd be like, hey, I'm sorry, man. It was just, I was a young kid. Or do you, <laughs> I've thought about this all the time because he's in Baltimore now. You know, I mean, I have not seen him since that season. In fact, I mean, he, he played for the, the for Washington the, the next year and, and I, I was not around because I was, I went, I was moved on to something else at that point. So I haven't seen him since that last game of that rookie season when he got hurt. And I do, I wonder what he would make of that whole thing. Um, I don't even know that he would remember me because, like I said, our one-on-one time was so limited, especially after March when I did go out to the house and spend, you know, some some decent time with him. But I don't know that he would remember me. He'd remember the book, I'm sure. But I don't know, man. I'd love to know what he thought of all that and what he thought about having a book written about you at age 22. I'm sure, you know, it wasn't his choice uh, he wouldn't have he wouldn't have chosen to have a book written about him that it was out of his control at age 22 right but um 
maybe he dug it. You know, I don't know. Yeah, it's funny. Did you know, like, when he got hurt, are you like, well, this isn't good for my book? Yeah, funny story. So the year before that, in 2011, was that 2011, 2010? Well, I don't know. The years all run together. I did basically the same thing with Steven Strasburg. I followed him his rookie year, chronicled that rookie year for the post. Same idea, six or eight long pieces. I sold a book on him after his big league debut when he struck out 14 Pittsburgh Pirates. It was one of the great debuts in history. He looked like a transcendent star. I sold a book, and then he blew out his elbow, and the publisher exercised an out clause and killed the book. So the book was dead. Um, the next year, I guess it was, I, I'm doing the same thing with Griffin. Uh, sold a book, um, and then he blows out his knee. And at this point, you know, people are starting to look at me like, dude, are you putting some like voodoo shit on these guys or something? And, um, you know, but, but what happened was the publisher, you know, had the same thing. They had the out clause, but, you know, the season was already over. It was January. And the publisher basically asked me, do you think he's going to play the next year? Because in baseball, as you know, the Tommy John surgery that Strasburg was going to have meant he was not going to play at all the following year. And a publisher can't put out a book about a guy who's not playing. So the publisher of this book asked me, is Griffin going to play the next year? And I said, yes. In fact, you know, he's already making noise about he's going to make it back for the first game. So he's definitely going to play. And the publisher said, okay, then we're going to go through with it. But I think that we all had this suspicion that he might never be the same. Let me ask you a final question. I always ask this on this podcast. What's your best uh, confrontation story with an athlete? Oh, man. Confrontation. Just trying to think of the best one. Um, do, does a team president count? Sure. We'll Stan, Stan Kasten tore into me one time, and it was during the Strasburg thing because Strasburg was, you know, he, he was shy. He, he didn't want the attention. He didn't want me around. He didn't want me in the minor leagues chasing him around. He didn't want the book. He was dead set against the book. He shut me off as soon as he heard about the book. And, and I was still chasing him. I was still trying to get to him. I was calling his parents, even though he told me not to. Um, and Stan Kasten just ripped me one time because they were trying to protect Strasburg. And I was trying to, you know, tell a story as truthfully and as well as I could. And I was going around what the team wanted. And man, Stan Kasten lit me up one time. We were, we were in a minor league stadium. I don't remember where it was. Um, when Strasburg was still pitching in the minors and he just went off on me in front of like, it was in a hallway outside the clubhouse, but there were people around and just was going off on me. It was horrible. Did we, do you, do you respond? Like when he's screaming at you, do you respond or do you just take it? I believe that I just took it and then all of a sudden decided I'm not taking it and I just walked away. I mean, I wasn't going to I wasn't gonna get into it with him. I wasn't going to escalate it, but I wasn't going to stand there and take it. So I just walked away. I'm like, okay, Stan, <laughs> I got a job to do. I'll see you tomorrow. Can the argument be made that after a player tells you, don't call my parents, you shouldn't call his parents? Or are we as journalists just supposed to walk through these things and sort of do it? Well, I felt like I was entitled to one try, you know, and they could tell me, no, that's fine. But when Strasburg said, don't call my parents, um, I, I felt like I was still entitled to one try on each, on each one. So I did it. And if, you know, 
they didn't talk to me. <laughs> but, you know, I, I had to try, and that that set them off, you know. I mean, I, I get it. You, you get to make the ground rules, that's fine. But, you know, you, you can tell your parents not to talk to me. I don't think that you can tell me not to try them. Yeah. Do you have a? Uh, do you have any relation with Strasburg now? Um, yeah, a little bit. You know, I mean, it's fine. It's not. You know, if I need him for something, he's he's good, he'll he'll do it. We're fine. We're on cordial professional terms now for sure. Yeah, man. Well, you've had a uh, had a great career, like a great uh, career. It's so it's uh, awesome. thanks, man. And uh, I appreciate you doing this a whole lot. Seriously, this is uh, one of my favorites. This is great. Ah, oh, dude, thanks so much, and I, I really, um, I really admire and, and and envy what you've done with your career. Yeah, I greatly, greatly admire you. But here's what I can tell you. So right now on Amazon, RG three, the promise, the ranking is one million, <laughs> one million five hundred four, which is selling better than my Roger Clemens biography. So, Come on, man, really? So you win. You win. Oh my God! I, 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 I sometimes people still send me pictures of that book that they found in a bargain bin at some, you know, books a million oh, yeah. or something. And I'll, I'll get a picture, a text from somebody. Hey, look what I found. You know, like, yeah, yeah. You, can, you can get it for pennies on the dollar now. Yeah. That's okay though. It exists. Yeah. All right, Dave, I appreciate it a whole lot. Thank you so much. All right. I want to thank today's guest, Dave Shinen for joining me on two writers singing Yang. You can follow Dave on Twitter at Dave Shinen and read his work in the Washington post. One can listen to Two Riders Singing Yang on pretty much every podcast medium, and your views are always appreciated. Music is by the Dazzling MC Whiteout, and also I have a book coming out in about a month, Three Ring Circus, that's available for pre-order everywhere. Thank you so much for joining me, and remember, keep riding.